stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the Welcome to episode 420 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Catonsville, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Carlos Welch in Las Vegas, Nevada, and by our guest, Justin Moyer, who I assume was in uh, Washington, D.C., or the vicinity, because Justin is a reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, he's also a poker player, of course, and he is a member of the post-punk band Light Beams, which has a new album called Wildlife that is available now. We'll have links in the show notes if you're interested in it after hearing Justin talk. So, I mean, that, that album is like the immediate impetus for having Justin on the show. But uh, Justin is someone that both Carlos and I know going back a couple of years because he has spoken with both of us for th uh, things that he wrote for the Washington Post over the years. Um, and I guess I should uh, add one more feather in his cap, although he was quick to uh, sort of downplay this when I, when I brought it up with him. Justin technically is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Uh, he was part of a team that won a Pulitzer for uh, the Washington Post's coverage of the uh, Capitol insurrection on January 7th. So we talked to him some about the experience of covering that and just about like covering various uh, riots and protests and things, uh, civil unrest <laughs> generally, uh, how that compares to um, poker, interestingly. And uh, yeah, there's actually a lot of poker talk. I mean, for, for as much as Justin does outside of poker, uh, we do actually end up, and he, he asked Carlos and me um, many questions about poker. So uh, I think that you will uh, find all that interesting and uh, hopefully the stuff about working for the Washington Post and about his band, uh, about creativity in, in general and holding on to that as you get older. Um, a lot of interesting topics ended up coming up in this conversation. So I hope that you will enjoy it. As I said, there is a lot of poker talk in the episode, so we're going to get right into it. I do just want to remind you that if you would like to hear more strategy talk from Carlos and me, and or if you just want to uh, support this podcast, the best way to do that is at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. You will get access to at least 10 minutes, uh, five days a week of Carlos and me talking strategy. I say 10 minutes because it often ends up being closer to 15, um, and you know we just answer a question or discuss a hand that... Uh, patrons such as you know, potentially yourself uh, submit for us to consider. There's no chit chat like this. We just get right into it. We talk the strategy. Uh, so 10, 15 minutes a day, you get to hit a strategy from the two of us. Uh, we would really appreciate if you can support us at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. All right, that's all for us. Uh, please enjoy this interview with Justin Moyer. So, Justin, your um, your Wikipedia entry, I think I might have actually closed the, the tab, but it refers to you as a, a musician and a journalist. Um, is, is that the right order to put those things in? Yeah, I think so. I feel like, you know, to make music is human. To make journalism is 
maybe slightly less human, but still <laughs> still human. But yes, uh, you know, at the pearly gates, if if I ever get there, I, I, yeah, I'd like to be a musician first because then I get maybe a better harp than everybody else or something. <laughs> That's interesting because I think you know both Carlos and I knew you as as a journalist. I think you had interviewed both of us for for various things that you were writing. Indeed. And I had no idea about the the music side of things until your publicist uh, contacted us about uh, doing an interview with you. And I was like, oh, he's also in like a number of bands that I had no idea that was, and I guess, the, the biggest part of you. Yeah, you know, it's kind of this weird thing about my life. To me, it just makes total sense. When I was 18, I moved to Cape Cod for the summer. I learned how to play bass, playing bass for a steel drum band. That was what I did at night. And in the day, I worked at this little local newspaper in Cape Cod. So I'm just trying to recreate that experience, you know, uh, 30 years later. <laughs> to me, it's a very natural, organic part of my life, but it's a little bit sometimes hard to explain or, or weird when people first uh, first learn of it, I suppose. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll get deeply into into both of those things, but let's start with your your connection to poker. Um, I think I also read the, you you wrote somewhere that you had been playing poker since before Jennifer Tilly was was doing it on TV. So, how far back do your, your poker roots go? <laughs> yes, and I just want to say to any listener, because sometimes I listen to this show and I'm like, wow, these guys are really good at poker. They seem to know a lot, and they have these machine learning tools and and advanced computer programs and stuff. I think I'm probably the worst card player that's ever been on this show. <laughs> and I, I'm very excited about that. And if there is a worse person, I feel very sorry for them because uh, they are not doing very well. But yes, I started playing in the in the 90s, sort of around the Rounders era, uh, maybe a little bit before Rounders era. And I really um, cut my teeth in a home game that is uh, was run by your friend Matt Matros and mine, I, who's been on this this program before. If that name rings a bell, of course it rings a bell. But no, I, I didn't. I didn't know that part. Yes, uh, I, I think it's okay to talk about a twenty-five-year-old card game. Uh, yeah, he had a game in his kitchen in Arlington when he lived down here, and and uh, yeah, I just it was a regular Wednesday thing, and that was the first time I was really exposed to people. Talking seriously, basically applying math and statistical concepts to poker. The tools at that time were obviously sort of primitive. You know, that was my introduction to the idea that this wasn't just like a a random, you know, fun thing to do, I guess. And that it's actually a very serious, very serious, not fun thing in certain certain, uh, situations. That actually is where I was about to go. I, I was going to say, naively, you might think that a a, a journalist and an artist, uh, maybe like a, a math, like once you recognize, oh, this is actually a very mathematically intensive game, um, it's not intuitive, you know, why that would uh, appeal to you. I, I, I like subcultures, you know, like journalism as a subculture, punk rock as a subculture, and poker, obviously, is a subculture, especially at that time where I remember I wanted to play a tournament and like the way to do that was to go to a parking lot and like a guy in the parking lot met, met you with a flyer and that directions to the tournament, which was in like a secret location in an, in a different uh, strip mall. I mean, it was really, <laughs> I almost said CD, but I didn't think it was CD. It was just, it was just very, uh, very underground um, mm-hmm. in a way that was pretty, 
pretty awesome. And I'm sure you all remember this, or if you're old enough to, though maybe you're not old enough to, I don't know. I, I was just thinking, I, I did go once or twice to a card room in uh, Chinatown in Boston that entailed like walking up a fire escape and like knocking on the door of an unmarked, <laughs> uh, which I mean, that was literally CD. Um, it, it did get robbed uh, not long <laughs> after I was there. And I, I quickly determined it was not a good idea to keep going there. Yes, and there was a bit of danger, which is kind of exciting. And also on tour at that time, um, I don't know if people know this, but musicians, most of the time, they're just sitting around. They're waiting, they're waiting to play, they're driving somewhere, they just played, they're waiting to go to the hotel, they're waiting to go to sleep. So when I would be on tour, I would try to seek out these random card rooms in places like Baton Rouge and Seattle, you know, Arizona. So particularly at that time, I was getting exposed to a lot of different players from a lot of different places with a lot of different ideas about poker, or in many cases, no ideas at all about poker, which was which was great for the time that it lasted. See, I, I never had any of these experiences because I got started with poker online and did that for, you know, close to 10 years before I ever played live. So by the time I started playing live in 2013, I think there were way more established places to play and fewer of those underground places. Like the closest I've ever come is like playing at home games, but there was like, you know, no danger involved except for, there was one time a guy was looking to buy a crossbow for his mom. <laughs> I want to hear about that guy. <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit weird for me, uh, but it wasn't dangerous. It was still in the box. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe you all have a perspective on this, but do you think the EV in those sort of sketchy, far-flung games was higher than, you know, online at that time? Like, I, I mean, I guess you're just playing so many more hands, but the, the lack of knowledge at that time was just really striking. Yeah, I mean, I... I'm not even sure if so. I mean, EV maybe if you were just looking at it like on a per hand basis, but like you said, the I mean the hourly rate when you can play so many so many tables and get in so many hands online. I mean that was that was hard to beat. That was a big part of why I didn't keep going to that room in in Chinatown. And then you also have to factor in the kind of like tail end risk of um, outright robbery at, at gunpoint, uh, which is obviously a worst case scenario, or the like slightly less bad scenarios of getting raided by the police or just having um, you know dealers pulling large amounts of money out of the pot at the behest of the person running the game. Like there were or you know getting cheated or whatever. I mean I think there's there's lots of things that can go wrong in those environments that are are part of why they're so like th there are reasons why more skilled players are sometimes avoiding those environments and i will say that like now when i play online i worry about the ev because i don't know like am i playing against a bot am i playing against some guy tracking my you know the, yeah, my hand very, history I, that's very reasonable so i'm just more inclined to uh break even at MGM uh, than to, you know, spend hours and hours um, on America's card room or, other, you know, where, wherever, wherever is the good place to play these days. I'm, I'm just sort of not aware of it. I just basically go to MGM. Well, and, and it seems like you've been in a position, uh, both both personally and professionally, to like track the, essentially the legitimization of poker from at least on the East Coast, uh, outside of Atlantic City, where you did have to be playing in at least you know, somewhat underground uh, environments. And the, the more money you were, you were playing for, the more anonymous the people you're playing against, the, the more you had to go through that sort of thing. And then now to the point where you know, there's probably nowhere on the East Coast where you're not within an hour's drive of a casino or not very many places. Yes. And it's been very shocking. And it's actually like a regional news story that we've 
I mean, I've tried to cover as much as I can. I don't know how much appetite there is for this kind of coverage, but when MGM came and what did that mean for the development of National Harbor and what was the traffic going to be like and what was the crime going to be like? And uh, it's just really a huge part of our regional life now that just didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, and, and it's to me, it's as a person who you know was born in the 70s and grew up going to Atlantic City. And, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia, so I was near Atlantic City. It's just shocking, you know, the idea that it's somehow acceptable to go somewhere and like bet a ton of money on like an NFL game. And that's just a normal thing that people do. And it's on your phone and it's, you know, Jamie Foxx is in these advertisements. It's just, it's just, to me, it's totally weird. Uh, I don't know if you all feel that way, but it's just like the whole culture flipped or something. Yeah. I mean, I still kind of remember... Because I mean, I read the newspaper probably more when I was in high school than I do now, just because the debates have compelled me to pay attention to more things. And there was a, a debate in Maryland at the time over because we've always had horse racing in, in Maryland. For some reason, people consider that a part of the like DNA of the state. And there was I guess it was considered a, a legitimate public policy uh, preference to to want to preserve horse races, even when they were no longer intrinsically profitable. So the, I mean, there was a debate. Uh, what, 30 years ago almost, about whether to just have uh, slots only at at um, horse tracks, not really, at least allegedly, not for the slots own sake, but for the sake of like keeping the horse racing viable. And I think that always kind of smelled like BS to me. And, you know, th that, that was like the way that things spread out it was like, okay, initially, we're going to have gambling just at the uh, at the places where, where there, there's already horse racing. And then like that kind of spreads out into, oh, we're going to spread all the games. We're going to have table games and we're going to have poker and, and we're going to have, even, even looking at Maryland live, you know, cause I, that, that's kind of the main place that I was going in, in Maryland. There was always this oddly shaped bar that just, it seemed it was too large for a bar. I was like, why is, why is this much space being taken up by a bar? And then all of a sudden sports betting gets legalized and that's the sports book. And I'm like, Oh, they, this was the plan all along. Like they, they built this space into the casino envisioning that they, even though at, at that time sports, the, the, it was not legal to have a sports book in Maryland that was already on their agenda. So I think, you know, unsurprisingly, like, I think this, this was part of someone's plan for a long time and they've been nudging the door open uh, so that it does start to feel more and more like normal or, or socially acceptable. But my question to you all is that, do you think that's good? Do you think more people who could be inventing vaccines or like, you know, learning more about the unified theory of the universe or whatever, should be spending time like figuring out what to do, like when they flop, uh, you know, trips on a wet board. I mean, it's just, do you think this is like time well spent is, is was sort of my question, I guess, because I can't figure it out myself. <laughs> I wouldn't compare it to those things that you mentioned like if you know if you have the ability to do those other things you should probably be doing those but if you compare it to like you know i know i'm talking to a musician here but if you compare it to like going to a concert uh, for a lot of these people poker is just like a form of entertainment so you know if they're gonna spend their money on entertainment anyway this would just be another option there like i don't think there's too many like, you know, diseases that would have been cured if not for all of us. Like I know I wasn't planning on curing anything before I found <laughs> poker. <laughs> it just seems like you all are pretty smart uh, folks. And a lot of the, as are many people playing cards. And sometimes when I'm, when I've spent like, you know, six hours at a session or something, I'm like, maybe like, this is not a good, <laughs> good use of time. Like, did you ever have a, like a day where it's like, oh, today I won $500. 
And then you go back the next day and just like lose $500. And then it's just sort of like, how have I spent my last 48 hours? <laughs> I, it's just kind of like, I, I wonder if gamblers ever think about that. And I, I guess it's, I should know that after so many years in casinos, but I still don't really know what people think about the, the activity, you know? For me, I feel that way with live poker because that's not an environment that I enjoy myself in as much. But online poker, I don't feel that way at all. Just because you feel like you're in a flow state, you're engaged, you feel like you're you're doing something that's like good for your soul? Not necessarily. Just because I feel like I'm in a place where I want to be and I'm doing a thing that I want to do. I never like, you know, win or lose. I rarely feel like, you know, it was a waste of time. But it definitely feels that way sometimes when I go to play live if I don't enjoy it as much. And so, you know, I, I like the only reason I would do it is because it was profitable. And so if I go and it doesn't work out, now I'm thinking about all the, you know, negativity I experienced while I was there. And so, again, to me, um comparing it to other things I would either do for money or other things I would do for entertainment. And for me online, it's kind of like perfect for either of those two live. I kind of get some of the same feelings you uh, mentioned, but I'm not, you know, comparing them to like, you know, is this good for my soul? Like if that's like, it's never going to be like, uh, like it can't win. <laughs> like it's not an apples out comparison. If you, if you're comparing it to like, the best things you could be doing with your time if you have the ability to. I guess I'm just trying to work it out in my own mind. And I guess I need to get to more of like a Zen space with that you seem to be in. Because when I win money playing cards, it's like, I feel like I won the Super Bowl. It's just this amazing thing. But when I lose money, it's I find it like very shameful. And like, I, I go to a dark place, especially if I'm bad beated, right? Because I'm like, I, if, I mean, if, if I can't, if I get it in good and that's, and I can't walk away with money, like what, like what are we even doing here? And I obviously intellectually know that that's how the game works, but, but it, for some reason I can't it, like that knowledge can't like find its way to my heart. So like that walk to the parking lot and that drive home, it's just like, Oh my God, like, what did I, what just happened? Why did we do this? Well, like, what, what are we doing here? You know, I can't, I can't escape it. And I think that's why I'm a bad gambler. Uh, so I, I thank you for helping me work this out uh, in real time for your listeners. Well, I think I think reckoning with some of that is part of part of what can be good about poker. Uh, you know, confronting some of those things or, or getting to have a more, um, I guess, like not being as attached to short term results. Uh, I think that's a thing. Yeah, obviously, it's it's. I think it's more obvious. But even if you still feel it, like you recognize intellectually that it's a little silly to like be that excited when when you win or that disappointed when when you lose. That like your your results are not that connected to how well you you spent your time or how well you played even during that time. Um, but I think that's true of a lot of things in life, and it's not always as obvious. And I think uh, that's one thing that poker has, has helped me with. And I, you know, maybe I should take that lesson to other areas of my life because, like, if I'm working on a story. And the story, for whatever reason, doesn't work out. The source changed their mind. The editors didn't want it or something. I'm like, oh, my God, what Like, what are we doing here? Like, We just spent all this time working. Now we're not going to publish it. And it's totally devastating. But maybe I should think about it more like cards. It's like, well, okay, there's X percent chance that you're going to get bad beated <laughs> yeah. uh, at, at work, you know, or, or even with music. It's like, okay, we made, we made this record. It took so many years. And now... Uh, we're trying to, you know, do these shows and do this press push of this and that, but maybe it wasn't received well, or maybe people couldn't go on tour and, and 
there's X percent chance we're going to get bad beated on our record and we should just sort of roll with it. You know, I, I don't know. I, I guess that's something I got to sort of, I got to work on that. Um, I, this might not be exactly the same concept, but I mean, I imagine artistically, there's also a thing of, you know, maybe there, there's uh, something you've been noodling on for a while or, or a song that you work on or something. And it just, it never pans out. Not just, it's not critically well, well received by your audience or whatever, but just like you personally never get it to the place that you, that you wanted it to get to at its conception. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you wasted your time on it, right? Like you were still learning something during that process that maybe helps you write something that is, that, you know, that does work better later. I mean, I hope you're right, but there's some songs. We were just practicing one on the other day. I've been working on this song. I think it's been 12 years. And it's it just, for whatever reason, it won't, it doesn't come together in the right way. And, and there's even been different people that try to play different instruments on it. And we're going to try this, we're going to try that. It's just sort of a failure. And then it failed again on Monday. And I was like, what are we even doing here? Why? Like, it's, it's sort of like a shame spiral. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I don't know. Was it? A, it feels a little bit like a waste of time. I mean, like all those hours in front of the computer, Pro Tools, whatever, trying to figure it out, and it doesn't work out. But I guess that's art. I guess like most things don't work out, right? Like uh, most hands you fold, most songs like aren't going to turn into your number one hit, right? So I guess I just got to be more philosophical about it or something. But uh, I, it doesn't. It doesn't come easy. I think you have to just take up pursuits in which you enjoy the process and don't be so attached to the results. And that's a lesson that poker teaches you once you do it over and over again, because as you have experience, you often go, you know, get, you know, your ass handed to you pretty much every time, even if you're doing the right days, like that doesn't mean you're going to win, especially if you play tournaments, because like a tournament with a hundred people in it, and you know everyone's close to equally skilled you got like a one percent chance of winning and now you think about tournaments with a thousand people in it and then think about the fact that people aren't equally skilled and there's going to be some people better than you if you are so concerned with winning it's just not going to um work out for you in the long run so like if you can learn to enjoy the process i think that'll like remove some of that um that i like the way you put it when you said spiral shame spiral or dread spiral like that was pretty vivid <laughs> yeah um yeah you just have to enjoy the process i think i mean and i will say and i want to make it clear i'm not only the worst card player that's ever been on this show i do not play tournaments so i listen with great interest to you all's um strategy uh segments where you all talk about some major move that you made with some hand and it's like a you know, some trash hand that I would like think nothing of throwing away. And I'm like, how do they have the courage to put all this, uh, you know, all this money in behind, um, I don't know, some like unsuited two gappers. I'm just like, wow, like I I could never do that. It's such an investment of time and emotion on what, what Carlos, you just said, such a small percentage, uh, uh, positive outcome. Yeah, I, I think of it not so much as courage, because uh, I feel like courage is like there's something that you should be afraid of or that like that, that, that you're afraid of, but you do it anyway. And I think it's more just not like once you're not so invested in the results, then you're not like afraid of bluffing. Like you just recognize, okay, that's just like part of the game. Uh, whether it's a, a, a bluff or a, a thin value bet or a big call or whatever it is, you know, it's like all of that is just 
there's places that EV comes from. And it's just like the, the analogy that I often use is I, I try to, and I'm not like perfect on this by any means, but this is like what I'm aspiring to. You know, I, I'm not trying to think of poker in any way as gambling. Like the, the money is as much in the background as possible. And I'm I'm mostly trying to think of it as though I'm doing a Sudoku puzzle or something. And I'm just like, there, there's a right answer here. And all I'm trying to do is, is arrive at the right answer and play my cards in, in the right way. Uh, and that may or may not result in me losing money but like i'm not thinking of it as oh I, I wasted so much time here because i was like i was playing this tournament for a while and then i didn't win the tournament like the 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 that ultimate outcome is just like if i put in the hours the results will get there eventually and so you know i'm just like at the uh at the ev mine and i think that's so admirable but i just can't catch up to you all with that like when you sometimes you all do the strategy segments and you're like, uh, yeah, we don't even have the results. And I'm like, what are, what are the results? <laughs> like, how can they not have the results? Like, and I was even, I was on a downswing recently. I've been on a downswing like my, you know, on and off for like a decade, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But I was, <laughs> I was thinking about about this 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 uh, concept, and I was like, okay, like I got bad beated. Okay, the results don't matter. But I'm like, okay, well, like they kind of do matter. Like I need that, uh, that, I need that percentage to come out in my favor, like today, you know what I mean? <laughs> because if not, if not, we're not gambling for like another six months or something. Cause this was the money that was devoted to this project. And you know, the project has failed because of the bad beat. You know what I mean? Like, so it's hard for me to internalize that, that, that whole thing about results don't matter. I, I think some of that is like, if, if you're not devoting, like if, if, if the money you devoted to the project can be wiped out by one bad beat, then you didn't devote enough money to the project or you were, you were playing stakes that were too high for the amount of money you had available to devote to the project. Of course. And what a logical response, but it's just like my heart, my heart can't get there, you know, because it's like, think about all the things in history where somebody plotted a scheme, whether it was a political project or a war and then it failed or, or succeed or whatever, but or, or it didn't work out for them. The results did matter for them, right? Because it's like, like, you know, maybe they calculated the percentage, like, I don't know, Martin Luther King. I don't know if Martin Luther King figured out the percentage possibility that, that his fight for civil rights were, were, uh, would succeed, but certainly the results mattered, right? But obviously that's not the same as like, you know, did your flush come in or whatever, you know, I mean, uh, but sometimes I think about it that way and I get, you know, basically confused and, and that's why I'm not good at cards. So I appreciate you having me on despite that because I enjoy these conversations. <laughs> I think, I think part of what's happening to you is what happens to a lot of our listeners is that you're not a professional card player, but you interact um, quite often with professional card players and you kind of develop like this hybrid mindset to where you kind of at least somewhat intellectually understand some of the professional mindset mindset but when you actually play it's hard for you to implement those things because you don't have like like for example one of the tools of being a professional is a proper bankroll and if you listen to you know us often and you kind of develop some of the strategic um, um, tools of a professional and you try to apply those things without a proper bankroll like that's when you kind of run into you know these issues because like the, what Andrew said is immediately what jumped out at me also is like there's, there's no way you need it to win today in order to keep playing 
if you, you know, had a proper bankroll, but there's no way you will have a proper bankroll if you're not a professional. If you're a recreational player, you just, you know, you budget for a certain amount of money that you want to play that day. And if you're purely playing for entertainment and you're not, you know, listening to podcasts and kind of developing this hybrid professional mindset, you want to win. But if you lose, you don't really care. Like you kind of expect it to lose. But you're kind of like stuck. Like, you know, I know I'm supposed to win this certain percentage of the time and uh, I want to. But if I don't like my all my money's on the table right now, like you're kind of like in a weird, you know, space between those two extremes. It's just to be like, oh, I'm just a recreational card player. That's kind of lame, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I'm just the guy who shows up to have fun. It's like, well, okay, I guess, but that's not really that cool. Like that basically means you're the fish, right? So if you're studying and listening to podcasts and doing this kind of work, but but you're you're unable to put in the hours, like how many hours do you have to put in before you know you're bad, <laughs> you're bad at something? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how many hours do you need to play the one three at live? or MGM where it's like, okay, if you haven't, if you're not earning X amount by this X number of hours after X number of hours, you need to like find something else to do. Man, there may or may not be an answer to that question, but I think what's probably more important is the, the time between sessions. Like you could probably like put in a lot of hours, like just on the weekends but you kind of lose so much ground in your knowledge and your in your your experience, um, like just remembering what happened in the last session. If you're not doing it every day or at least every couple of days, like in, in my experience, like you know, working with students, I'll have people that will come to me for coaching, and we'll go over a concept, and they'll have it, and then they'll do another coaching session a month or two later, and it's like reteaching the whole thing. And so it's not necessarily the number of hours, but like the the consistency, I think, on like this, doing it more frequently, I would say. And that's hard when you are not doing it as a profession. I agree. And the times in my life where I've had like a week or two or someone, I think, on this podcast described it as three three weekers, like people who would show up in Vegas and they're like, I just moved to Vegas from my hometown. I'm going to make a go of it. And after three weeks, they're gone because they've blown their whole bankroll and they they thought they were better than they were. Do you know what I mean? Like the times in my life where I've, I've had like a week to like fully devote uh, to gambling, <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing to say. It's like, we're going to really, you know, get in on this gambling thing. Um, uh, it's like the results are not good. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, like, you know, I probably should, you know, it's good that this vacation ended and now we're going to go back <laughs> to normal life. Because I don't want to be one of these three weekers or one, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to just like, you know, piss all this money away because it's very depressing to me. And I care about the results because I'm not like you Zen masters, you know, running the show, uh, running this podcast. We just got beat to a bloody pulp and now we're numb. <laughs> and you can't get beat that, uh, you can't get beat enough to become numb unless you get beat every day. <laughs> So, yeah, in order to develop this mindset, you got to kind of do it every day and just, you know, you just get numb to it. And it, you you what I like to do is think of poker as a decision making game, kind of like Andrew talked about. Um, I just want to make the right decision. And if I make the right decision, that's the thing I can control. 
like the results will take care of themselves in the long run. But to answer your previous question, it takes harder to get to the long run if you're not, you know, doing it consistently. And so, well, I guess, you know, I'm not answering your previous question. I'm saying like, that's the reason your previous question doesn't have an answer is because you can't really get to the long run to where, you know, your good hands hold up the correct percentage of the time if you're only doing this like every other weekend or something. So did you all ever have a student where you're like, you should really give this up? <laughs> <laughs> like you're fired as my student. I, I, I've had I've had one who basically like wouldn't let me drop it where I was like, I don't think it's truly the only one, but like he was, he was, he was really, he, he still is very frustrated with, with poker and like was not, um, it's, it's kind of a long story, but I was like, I, I, I don't think you have a good relationship with, with poker. And it, not, it wasn't that he was like losing money that he couldn't afford it. Just like he wasn't, he wasn't winning money and he didn't seem to be enjoying it. And I was like, I don't understand why you're still doing this. <laughs> um, and he, he just sort of like kept insisting that he wanted to to keep working with me. So we still are a little bit, but um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the closest thing I've come to someone where it's just like, I, I mean, I don't think that just because you're not winning money necessarily means you shouldn't be doing it, right? Like you're not a professional poker player. Um, I do think if you're not enjoying it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, and obviously like winning helps you enjoy it, but I don't think, I mean, I, you have different jobs where, where you make money. Like, I don't think you're, if, if, if your goal was just make as much money as possible, I doubt like sitting down at a one, two table at MGM national Harbor would be the way to do that. I think that that's true. And I also have one, um, out of all these years now, man, uh, one guy that I pretty much just had to fire as a student because it was kind of like what I was saying a second ago. He would do a session like once every three months or so. And either, you know, I'm reteaching something that's pretty basic and kind of like fighting with him on it because like, you know, he doesn't believe what I'm saying. And it got to a point where I raised my rates and he still wanted to do sessions, even though it wasn't good for him. Like, I was like, you're not getting it. I'm not sure if you're even trying to get it. And even when you do get it, you forget it by the next time you do a session. And now you really can't afford it. Because I, when I started, I was charging $50 an hour. And then this guy uh, came back around like, you know, I think he saw he saw that I won the bracelet. He's like, oh, maybe that guy did know what he's talking about. <laughs> and then and then he came back around when my rates were like $150. And it was just like reteaching the same stuff. And I, I felt bad taking his money because I didn't really see like he was putting in a lot of effort on some on things that I was not telling him to put effort in on. So it's not like he wasn't trying. It was just like he wasn't trying the things that he was paying me to tell him. And I was like, I just feel like I'm stealing your money, man. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I mean, that's, that's bleak to me. Like I'm worried about that person, you know? And I, and I feel like there, there's, especially with social media now, there's this culture around like poker success. And, you know, when I read, you know, with the typical, I'm not going to name people's names, but when I, you know, when I, when I consume this kind of media, I can't help but, but wondering, I'm like, is this person really, are all these people really winning card players? No. <laughs> Straight up, no. You're like, it's not no. even a question. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that a large percentage of professional poker players are like 
poker players that people know by name that are kind of like semi-poker famous, a lot of these players aren't winning players, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's gotten more true in the social media era where like you can, I mean, it's it, like at this point, it's it's closer to being an entertainer than to being a, a, like, you don't, you don't need to be making money from poker. Like you can afford to lose money at poker if you're making enough money from YouTube or whatever. But how would you ever know? That's another thing that annoys me about poker. It's like, well, I don't really, if I publish an article, there's my name. If I win an award, there's my name. If I make a record, same thing, you know, but I don't know how much this, per, this, this uh, influencer, you know, made last year. I don't know their hourly rate. I guess tournament there's tournament results that are public. Yeah, and it's I mean there's no there's no one right answer, right? Like your win rate is different in every game that you're in. So like probably those people are their winners in some of the games that they're playing and not in some other ones or when they're in a certain mindset and, and not when they're in others. I mean it's more just like how you approach those things as as a viewer. Um I think you should be approaching all of them you know, for for entertainment purposes first, uh rather than thinking that you know, that's somewhere where you're going to like to learn or even to get a realistic. I guess that's that's the more important thing is that like they're not their objective is not to give you a realistic portrayal of what it is to be a professional poker player. You know, th they're giving you something sensationalized either for the purpose of like generating uh, traffic for, for themselves or in the cases of people who are selling like coaching and, and other products, they're also selling, I think many sometimes like a kind of oversimplified vision of how easy it's going to be to make money from poker and you're like, Oh, one easy trick to, you know, double your win rate or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it seems pretty complicated to me. And I've been a student of the game for 25 years. I mean, I certainly never thought I'd spend this much time thinking about something that's supposed to be like a fun game, or, or I guess could be for some people a fun, a fun thing, or that was presented to me as a kid as a fun thing, you know, playing for pennies or whatever with my friends, um, playing like, you know, stud and baseball and, you know, what, you know, all the games that, you know, we play people play when they're kids poker players so I, I, it's just to me this weird philosophical mystery or something it's like gaming and what it is and its place in society and can you make a living doing it and the environments are so strange they're so unlike any other environment because because i i've walked I've, I've walked up a version of the stairway um andrew that you described like at a, at a sketchy game in an alley, you know, in DC that got robbed, you know, I mean, it's just like, what am I doing here? Like, sometimes it's just, I just, when I look around, it just seems very uh, unlikely or something. And that's, what's fun about it, but it's also kind of scary a little bit as well. <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, where I thought you were going, like way way back when you first asked that that question, because um, I mean, obviously I'm hopelessly biased on this, but I'm I'm much less concerned about the time people spend playing poker. Like, there certainly are people who have an unhealthy relationship with with poker, but I think like most other forms of gambling are much more pernicious than than poker. You know, poker at least there there's you know a heavy heavy degree of potential intellectual engagement with it. And um, I mean, I'm sure there are people who learn things from playing other gambling games, but I think it's much less common. I agree. It just sometimes I just feel like I'm thrust into odd situations. Like, did you all ever see somebody from the gaming world in a non-gaming context? Like maybe a drug dealer that you know from, <laughs> from like a two, and, and he, like they see you at the movies and you're like, oh, hey, and, and like 
a person you're with or like my wife would be like, who is that? He'd be like, oh, this is this is drug dealer I know uh, from so-and-so. He's great, you know? Uh, I, I overheard a funny, I, I don't have a lot of personal experience with that, but I did when I when I was playing at Pittsburgh, I, I heard a guy tell a story about this where he he recognized someone else from the from the poker. They were like, I don't know, Home Depot or something. And the guy was there with his wife and he recognized him and you know just, just, said, just said hi. Didn't say anything about poker, just said hi to him. And he could tell immediately from the look on the guy's face that like he shouldn't have done that. And then the wife was like, where do you know him from? And I was like, obviously he was not supposed to be playing poker and like the whole, just like all it took was saying hi. And that was enough to like blow up this guy's spot. <laughs> yeah. That, that secretive sort of quality to the game is very, uh, interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and also a little bit concerning. Online, online players don't have that problem. I've never seen any of these people in person. I've never leave my house. But then you're such a committed. I wonder about about your daily life because aren't you worried about bots and hacking? And did you get the money into the platform? And can you get the money out after Black Friday? And when's the next Black Friday? I mean, I, that to me just sends me in a spiral. Do you all feel like online, like the algorithm or whatever, is juicing the um, the results? It's like, do you feel like you're like hitting a lot more full houses and for? Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems like um, something's making the game more exciting, you know, on, on a phone app, as opposed to like just a normal ha hand that's played out in a, in a live room. Yeah. That's one of those things that I feel, I mean, I, I won't say that I've never like felt that at some level of like, Oh, that, that like felt weird, but I've seen, I, I've seen that issue raised so many times in the, you know, 15 plus years that I've been like paying attention to online poker. And like, it's, it's just, I, I, I think that it's, natural that we would feel like that uh like randomness does not feel random to to humans uh randomness feels rigged and i think that there are better like there has been cheating in online like that's not the kind of cheating that i'm worried about there are kinds of cheating i'm, I'm worried about in online poker but like juicing the pots thing no that that's not really something that i worry about no and for me i prefer online um certain sites that are super soft because they're super soft and I know there's cheating going on, but if their way of cheating is like limp calling my 20 big blonde gel with nine five suited, as I have, <laughs> you know, like they do that stuff like that all the time. And like, you know, sometimes they win. And unless they're like winning that hand when I have like ace king or, or jacks or something at like a 75% clip, which isn't supposed to happen in the long run, then I don't care if they get lucky sometimes. And I'm thinking like if they're cheating, they're doing a piss poor job of it uh, with the way they play. I The way I view it is if the game is soft enough, then what cheating does is it takes away from a winning player's edge, but it doesn't make a winning player a losing player. I've, I've, I've told Carlos this. I don't think I've, I've talked about this on the air. Uh, there, there's another game that I've gotten into playing uh, called Marvel Snap, which is sort of like a Hearthstone or, or Magic the Gathering type type of game um, that, that's played online. And I've participated a little, or read anyway, some like uh, forums where, where people are discussing that game. And like, there are also people who are convinced that that game is rigged against them. Like they, they think that they're being matched, they're being given unfavorable matches or unfavorable game conditions, like literally the exact same, I would call them conspiracy theories that I'm encountering in, in poker of oh the sites are juicing things so, so that I'm losing like people are convinced the exact same thing is happening in like this purely recreational Spider-Man game. Well, let me ask this: so there's no money, there's no money in this game that you're talking about. 
I mean, the, the developers, you know, they they make money selling cards in in the game, but no, I mean, you're not betting. It's not a you're not. No, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not playing for money. No. So let me ask this. So then, when you're playing an, a a game not for money, are are you ever like, this game's kind of boring? Like, can't we get some money in this game? Like, <laughs> whether it's Monopoly or the money is not the part I find interesting about poker at all. Um, I, I, I it's it may be the reason why I, I play poker even when I'm not interested in it, like, because I, I, you know, I, I earn money by, by doing it, but the, the money is not what makes poker interesting to me. What, what is it that makes it interesting? So like the problem solving, like I, I am a person who has previously done Sudoku puzzles for fun. When I was a kid, I like bought books of logic puzzles from the, from the uh, grocery store and would like, you know, do just to sit around doing logic puzzles. But like, I enjoy that stuff. But do, don't you think the money puts this emotion in it that is like super intense and maybe like kind of dangerous and interest and, and like pretty interesting and maybe kind of scary? Yeah, but that's a bug, not a feature. Yeah, <laughs> mostly, mostly I don't experience. I mean, I'll experience that if I'm like deep in the main event or something, but like it really has to be. And even then it's, I mean, I'm not going to say the money is nothing, but a lot of it is like the, the experience and, and like the opportunity of that. Um, but you know, most of the time when I'm playing, I'm I'm really not thinking about or experiencing the, the winning and lossing of the, the lossing, <laughs> the, the winning and lossing of money very much at all. Yeah, like Justin, I think, and Andrew can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my guess is what you described about, you know, how the money kind of brings in emotion, you know, the ups and downs. And like, you know, I think that creates more of an element of fun. And I think the more fun, the more likely it is that you're having fun in that sense when you're playing poker, the less likely it is that you're winning in the long term. To me, that is like the opposite of what has happened to Andrew and I, which is you kind of become numb to the swings and you just like, you know, just make the right decision. Like, who cares about the results? Like, you kind of have to get to that point, I think, in order to play the game profitably in the long term, because it's like, like, it's pretty boring the majority of the time. And so if you're chasing that high or chasing that low, then you might be getting in spots in order to feel something that you shouldn't be in it at all. Like to me, I I find that that not everybody, because there's some really good players who are like who enjoy the swings and they're like, you know, having a lot of fun when they play. But I think the average player, like, I mean, we call it like recreational player. Another word for that is a fun player. And generally that means someone who's not winning. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a harsh reality, you know. But you all have this Miyagi mindset that I need to, I need to access that a little bit more. Andrew's probably not on an emotional roller coaster when he's doing a Sudoku pose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it gets pretty intense. Th there probably are people who are like I imagine there are people who who curse and throw those books across the room. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so those people are probably some of the best, uh, the, the the biggest winners of the game and poker, probably. <laughs> you know, so if you can combine the two, where you care so much about just the decision making that you kind of get emotion from that, as opposed from as opposed to the results and the up and downs of the money, that sounds like that could be like the makings of a really good poker player right there. Justin, something else occurred to me when you were talking about like the poker being feeling kind of like surreal and, and dangerous. Um, so I, I know you, you covered, uh, you're part of the team covering the like January 6th uh, Capitol insurrection for the post. Were you literally there while while that was happening? So I want to be clear. I was on the team. 
However, I was late. I was late to the insurrection. I had signed up for the late shift um, because in the previous uh, protest, that was sort of where the action was. But the insurrection did not unfold that way, as you may remember. Um, I was sitting at home, sort of watching it on TV. And um, around two, I think, I started to realize, I'm like, these people that just tore down these fences like, are not going to stop. Um, my shift, shift didn't start till five. So I was just sort of watching my colleagues respond in real time to this unprecedented, totally insane situation. And I thought things were going to blow up even more once the sun went down. But by the time I got down there, we had to check a, there was a threat made on the, the DC mayor's house that day. And we had to go to the house and turned out it was nothing. So anyway, by the time I got down there, it was like, um, it was like 6 PM or 7 PM. So everyone was still kind of hanging around, but like the crowd had been dispersed. So I have to be, I have, I, I just always want to make that clear because like I was there. I was on the team. I was there until, you know, two in the morning that night. But like the stuff that you see with the guy and the horns and, you know, people getting shot, I was not, I, I had been in similar environments at previous protests, but on that day, I was not. So I don't have any like, unfortunately, amazing tales of heroism from uh, <laughs> that my colleagues do. Um, well, that seems like the sort of thing where I, I guess if, like the, the idea of my shift doesn't start for three hours. Like when, when you see something that momentous happening, isn't there a part of you that's like, well, I'm just going to go down there now anyway. Why didn't I go down there? It's like <laughs> the, one of the greatest regrets of my life. Just start a little work a little early. But I was like, no, I'm going to wait for my shift. And that's not my job. So I was just sort of like, I guess in my union mindset or something, I was like, it, I could have really helped. I could have really supported my colleagues that day. And I kind of missed the missed the opportunity from my own stupidity. It's kind of like the guy who like, like D-Day, the guy like stayed on the boat or something is a little bit of the, of the, of the feeling. So, and my colleagues are still grappling with this stuff to this day. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, it just, it, it kind of started like knowing that you had, had worked on that to hear you describe a poker room as like surreal yeah. and dangerous struck me as uh, uh, remarkable. I mean, cause at a protest, you're like a journalist, you know, like when I've interacted with proud boys or police or had to maybe slightly run away from a hairy situation with bear mace or whatever, like I'm a, I'm like a witness to history, but then if I'm in like the Brigada, uh, <laughs> you know, two five game at age 23 for the first time in my life. And I have a thousand dollars in front of me. I'm not an observer. I'm about to lose a thousand dollars. And I did, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, to me, that's like in some ways, um, I don't want to say it's more intense because, you know, obviously people have post-traumatic stress and I'm, I'm not, I do not have post-traumatic stress from playing cards, but it's very different to be there in an alien environment with, you know, people that aren't, in your milieu, whatever you're, whatever you were raised that, you know, you're just not used to necessarily being around, you know, a guy who makes a living selling drugs or betting on baseball games or, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not that those people are, are bad and, and they're in many ways, they're more interesting than like people I know, uh, in, in everyday life. But, um, it's just, you know, it's a very, you need to sort of learn how to navigate those environments, I think. And you shouldn't. And I think it's, it's better to be able to operate in those environments. Cause it makes you, it, I, to me, it makes me a better reporter. It's like, well, I can talk to anybody, you know, like no matter if you're in prison or a murderer or a murder victim, you know, family of a murder victim or a 
proud boy or someone that approaches, it's like, you know, I, I, I feel comfortable talking to all kinds of people. So maybe poker did help with that. The, the lesson is sometimes expensive. Well, other than just the night of, of the protest uh, or the insurrection, what, what, what did reporting on that entail? Like, I mean, were you also involved in the, in the like follow-up the reporting on the aftermath of it? Um, yes, but after that day, I think a lot of my colleagues would agree with this. The right wing sort of abandoned DC as a, as a protest space, or maybe not totally abandoned, but I feel like a lot of people, especially since so many were prosecuted are aware that like protesting in this way, like can lead to uh, negative EV <laughs> for lack of a better word. But to me, it was the six months leading up to that, that I was involved in because uh, it was still coronavirus time. And, you know, they would ask for volunteers. So I would just, I would volunteer basically as much as I could. And, you know, um, I think it was May 31st was the first sort of major George Floyd protest. And then there were counter protests where, you know, there was a lot of burning, uh, burning and looting, uh, to quote Bob Marley, um, in downtown. And it's just sort of that, that six month period leading up to the insurrection was a very, um, fraught time in DC, Black Lives Matter Plaza, groups of people sort of having physical, <laughs> physical arguments, I guess would be a way to put it, uh, you know, on the streets of DC. That was a very, very intense time. And I think we were just as journalists sort of figuring out how to cover this conflict um, in real time. And hopefully we did a good job um, and told stories that were important. And you won our Pulitzer for it, right? It's not just mine, it's the team. <laughs> so so it's like, isn't there, what's that thing that was like the corporation? It was the group of card players that like played, who did they play against? Was it? Uh, and the bill. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. Did the corporation win? Or did they lose? Or maybe we don't know. We don't have the results. Yeah, they, they played against them a few times. I, I forget like what, and I think the composition of it changed a little bit. Um, I mean, there's a whole book on it if you want the full story. But I even, Maybe I even read that book. Anyway, a news team is sort of like the corporation. You know, it's like, <laughs> we're going to take on this story and we can't just be, you know, uh, it's not going to just be one person standing around the insurrection. It's going to be like, you know, 30 people standing around and we're going to like, communicate in real time. We're going to use Slack. We're sending what are called feeds uh, back to the newsroom, like little snippets of like a uh, description of what's happening. And, and we're going to all work together to make this, uh, this, this story happen with video and photo. So yeah, we're sort of like the, you know, the corporation. I think only the the listeners of this podcast would understand what I'm talking about, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they, hopefully it's, it's helping understand how we work together. Do you know who Jay Rosen is? That name is ringing a bell, but I guess I guess not, right? Obviously, a columnist. He's, um, I think he's a professor of journalism at at NYU. He, he's a, a kind of prominent like um, theorist of of journalism or something. Uh, but he, he talks about specifically for covering like the the kind of MAGA far right movement in in the U.S. The difference between like horse race style coverage, I guess it's specific to to elections. Right. You know, the difference between like a horse race style coverage um, versus uh, covering the stakes, uh, which I think is interesting how how much that gambling matter. It didn't actually, I wanted to ask you about this even before it occurred to me that that's a gambling metaphor. Like I'm so used to seeing that language um, that I hadn't even initially struck me that it, that is actually uh, the gambling metaphor as well. But um, yeah, I mean, so when it comes to covering something like the, well, I mean, any of these, any of these politically charged protests, whether, I mean, Black Lives Matter, you, you could say some of the same things. 
I, I imagine there's there's conversations in, in the new even a policy in, in the newsroom around this. But you know, how do you think about what is it that you're you're trying to portray as as a journalist? Like, do I have an opinion about it? Um, yeah. Like, what what is the the goal of of the of the final work? You know, is is it simply to say here are the people who were here, here's what they did, here's what they said, or or you know, to what extent is it understanding the the stakes of of kind of like here's what it will mean uh, if if this side or or the other triumphs? That's a great question. You know, I don't want to speak for all my colleagues, but for me, I don't know. Like, I had to cover. A, uh, a, pro- a Gaza protest just two days ago in the in the Cannon Building. I, you know, it's like all I, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not an expert on this conflict. You know, um, I have opinions about it uh, that I don't think maybe I, I want to share. But like, um, I, I can't solve this. I, I I can to an extent contextualize it, but mainly I'm just there watching. You know, and I'm just sort of like. Obviously, I don't. I don't want to pretend like every word I, I wrote is like precisely neutral, or, or or could be more neutral, or or you know, there's a lot of arguments about that. But mainly, I'm just kind of watching, and I say this a lot, and I I say this to sources sometimes, and I I I, I sort of sometimes some on some days I mean it, and other days I don't. But it's sort of like um, journalists are just kind of dumb. Like <laughs> we're just kind of idiots. It's just like. I you like I don't know anything. What do you think? You know, like you tell me what the story is. You know, like I feel like that's what our our job is, or at least that's what my that's what what I think my job is. You know, it's like you you inform me because people are like sometimes they'll email and they're like you got to write a story about X Y or Z and this is an outrage and I'm like okay like can you talk about it? Do you have any documents? Are you going to be on the record? No, you don't have any documents. No, you're not on the record. <laughs> well, I guess there's no story then because. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a guy, you know, like, uh, you got to tell me this stuff in order for me to write it down. You know what I mean? I, I just write things down. Obviously that's simplistic, but I, I feel like I, sometimes when I get criticized online or I see my colleagues, I'm just, I wish people sort of understood that more, you know, it's like, we're just kind of there, you know, um, watching and documenting. Um, I don't want to speak for my colleagues. That's how I view it. There, there's choices of, of like, what's worth documenting though. I mean, so I guess that's like one of, one of the, the criticisms that I often see level that like the, the post or the New York times or whatever of, um, you know, by, by, I guess, giving a platform to, to certain people are saying, we're going to share this story and not that story. Or we're, we're going to give a, a, a lot of space. The, even if you're not explicitly saying like, I, or maybe you don't even agree with that person, but it is still kind of lending credence to, to their, their view or whatever by, dedicating a certain amount of, um, you know, space in the newspaper to them. I totally agree. And I don't want to like dodge your question, which I think is important, but in some ways, like it's above my pay grade. I come up with ideas for stories. I present them to my editors and they decide like what is worth, you know, what is worth their time and, and, and what is not. And I think it was someone at the post who gave me good advice, which they said, every good reporter has a story that they can't get in the paper. You, you know, and I think that just speaks to the point that like, um, I'm just a worker at this institution in some ways. Like I don't, I don't control what it, you know, what it deems worthy. I, I try to influence it where I can, but it's not really, in a way it's not really up to me. I know that's kind of, it must be such an annoying answer to hear. It's like, ugh, why won't this guy just like say, you know, what he thinks or what he needs, but uh, you know, I, it's just sort of, that's the way, you know, that's the way it is, you know, and at least, at least in my view. 
Uh, well, we've been at this an hour and we haven't even gotten around to the to the music yet. Do you have more? All time? right, then we made it a record. <laughs> we got to talk about it. That's why we're here. The band is called Light Beams. Uh, we made a record. Yeah. So I, I actually, I mean, I'd heard the term post-punk. I don't think it really meant that much to me. Um, what does it mean? What does yeah, it mean? Do you I, know? I, I, I mean, I, I Googled it an hour ago uh, or two hours ago, um, but I, it surprised me. I, mean, I guess some of the bands that, that I recognize that, that came up as being potentially in that genre of like the Talking Heads, for instance, is, is one. I, like punk is not a genre that I'm particularly engaged with. And like the punk music that I've had, like I, I sort of respect the, the punk aesthetic of the, oh, we're just going to like do it ourselves and we're not that concerned about whether it like sounds good um that it's probably a caricature but that's sort of how i think of like punk music um but a lot of the stuff that i saw labeled as like post-punk which i think the, the the definition that i saw was it was kind of trying to hold on to the the aesthetic of punk but um was more kind of had more of an artistic philosophy behind it maybe is that uh do, do you identify with that Wow, what a good question. Uh, I, I'm going to probably have another shitty answer. Um, I just feel like I'm like, I think of punk in a very specific context, which is sort of like groups from Washington, D.C., many affiliated with Discord Records, which is a little label we have down here, <laughs> uh, making politically oriented, do-it-yourself music uh, with a accompanying ethos about like not selling out and not doing commercials because then you'd make too much money and be too happy and you wouldn't be a miserable punk musician <laughs> anymore. Um, so when people think of like Sid Vicious or like, um, you know, the remote, like these punk acts from days of yore where people are like overdosing on heroin, like that's not my experience of punk. My experience of punk is like, it's almost like a cottage industry of like little business people making these little, little labels and these little records. And they're mostly not uh, totally unprofitable and many of them disappear into obscurity. So that's the community that I'm in, <laughs> or at least that I came from. And um, what it means in terms of post-punk and is it really after punk? That's not really something I think about. Uh, it's just sort of a word that is used in a, in a way that's kind of like um, maybe doesn't have as much meaning anymore. Or maybe it's like I'm almost 50 or 46. So I'm sure it has meaning for someone who's like 16. And that's the person who the person, the question should be uh, directed at. But they're not a post, a host today on Thinking Poker. So they have no opportunity. So I'm going to, I'm going to dominate the conversation and say what I think instead. Well, are, are there are there groups or artists that you would point to as uh, influences, either like for you personally or or for this particular group? Absolutely, um, I would say uh, Fugazi is is obviously the big DC band that people at least are aware of or were aware of. They've they've haven't really done anything in a few decades now. I've heard the name. I don't think I would recognize any of their songs. Yes, and that's a, I think a generational shift, and that's just the way getting old is. It's kind of weird. But I would also say um, we're really in light beams is really influenced by artists sort of outside that community, like Sheila E, you know, who's a famous percussionist and played with Prince. And, you know, she I don't think ever thinks about Washington, D.C. post-punk, but, you know, uh, or bands creating this music called Freestyle in New York uh, from the Bronx. That's super percussion based. Like we're a band of, of really of percussionists because we. We don't have live instruments. We have samples or we have a live drummer and a live bass player. But other than that, everything you hear is pretty much sampled. 
so we're influenced by a lot of, you know, 1980s New York dance uh, <laughs> subculture. But because we are from this community, we're sort of bringing that to the the punk or the post-punk or the DIY context. So we're, we're a bit of like an, uh, a, a mismatch of um, species, uh, like a Frankenstein's monster. Uh, but friendly, but friend, we're friendly uh, and we want people to, to listen. It seems like a difficult thing to do in, in DC and I guess a lot of major metro areas now with just like rents and things getting so much higher. Um, I would imagine there's like fewer and fewer clubs uh, where a, a, a group that's not pulling, you know, really big numbers would, would be, I mean, maybe I'm underselling you, uh, but the, the, the way that you've described yourself um, makes it sound very sort of scrappy and um, is, is, is that uh, an increasing challenge? It is a challenge and it is really scrappy, like five people in a minivan with like 2000 pounds of gear. We all slept on the same floor last night on tour. It wasn't a clean floor. Uh, the business model of the music industry has kind of fallen apart in a way that I think is not totally unlike the way that like uh, the poker economy has I don't think it's fallen apart, but it's certainly changed. Like it's not, you can't just show up and sit at the table and just fold and fold to win. You know what I mean? Like you have to have, um, and with music you need, you have to have a social media presence and you have to be very active on there. And you, uh, in a way that- You do all these goddamn podcast interviews. You do podcast <laughs> interviews. I mean, I love to talk, you know, I love to do interviews. So for me, it's not a problem, but, but some of this social media stuff, I'm like, I don't know what, what is a TikTok video? What is that supposed to be? Like, I, is, can someone in, younger in the band solve this, <laughs> this problem for me? And, and actually some people in my band have like, Leia, our, who plays Rototoms in our band, does a lot of our social media. Erin uh, not only plays uh, Timbales, but she makes t-shirts. Like, like these younger people in, in my group are, are, um, are, are better at that stuff than me, than me. So I really lean on them to, to move about in that space. Don't you hate when people say space in that way? It's like, we're in the poker. Do people ever talk about the poker space on this podcast? I feel like they do. Probably. I feel like it happens more not on this podcast. <laughs> like, and when you hear that, aren't you just a little bit like, ooh, like, I don't know about that. I don't know. That's how I feel. I think it's one of those things. I, I think I used to feel that way, but I probably say it myself now. Like, it, it, it won. I know, right? And that's, I feel like in your, in middle age, you have to kind of be like, okay, like, I can't just be a grumpy old man. I need to engage with this stuff and see if I can fit into it. So that's, you know, that's really what I'm trying to do as a human, like in journalism, in music, in the MGM card room. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just being like, do I still fit here? You know what I mean? So it's an ongoing process. I, I think about that a lot, especially, I mean, so I just turned uh, 41 and trying to stay open to like, because there are things that young people do that I'm like, that's stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, I know right? that like every generation ever has always been like, oh, these kids these days, they don't understand things the way my generation did. So, you know, trying to remain open to like, even it doesn't make sense to me, but you know, there's, there's, it's probably not as dumb as it seems. Do you all play big O uh, five card Omaha? I have. In your daily life? Uh, I'm, I'm so, sure Carlos does not. No. I've seen it, but I wouldn't dare play it. I mean, this is a major thing in MGM, and I'm sort of like, I played it a few times, and then I was like, wow, this is dumb. Like, that's how I felt. <laughs> but I don't want to be that guy because, you know, there's probably some action there, right? 
like it, there's probably some some spots you can exploit there but i just i'm too scared to learn them or or maybe there's not enough of them i don't know but i feel like just as there was a shift away from stud and and um draw one day there's going to be a shift away from hold them and then what's going to then what do i do you know or maybe what do you do I mean, i'm sure you're conversant with many other games but um, I worry there, even it. within Hold'em, there are shifts. I mean, and this might be less apparent to you if you're not like playing online or, or playing tournaments, but if things like uh, spinning goes or progressive knockouts, uh, these are things that didn't exist 15 years ago and, and are like very popular parts of the poker landscape now. And they're still, I mean, you can play them in any form. It wouldn't have to be Hold'em, but you're still playing Hold'em. But in many ways, the, the game is pretty different. With Cash, like you might be a little bit more familiar with like, uh, more extravagant straddles and like bomb pots and all that kind of stuff is kind of changing the game uh, to some degree. But so when you do you all are you ready to engage with that or you're just like f that I don't want to I don't want to do that. I'm in team f that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely the the old man who just. But my, my my thing is. This game is hard. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> enough, you know, doing it just a vanilla no limit holding way. And I spent like two decades trying to figure that out. And now that I kind of got half a clue, I don't want to start over and learn some other shit. I just want to continue to exploit this until I can't anymore. And then I'll learn that other stuff. Yeah, I think so. Like the, the specific things that I mentioned of progressive knockouts and um, spinning goes. Those are, they're actually not that new anymore. And so there are people who are, are, have, have mastered them pretty well. And so I'm reluctant to play them for that reason, because I'm, I'm not one of those people. I think when something is truly new, uh, I think there is a lot of opportunity to get in there first and you don't have to master it. You just have to be better than the other people who are, who are playing it. And that in some way, I mean, it's, it's intimidating because you don't have the same kind of confidence where, you know, when I'm playing Hold'em, there's a lot of spots where I'm just, I'm hundred percent sure this is the right play. And that doesn't happen very often if I'm playing something that I'm less familiar with, but as long as everyone is less familiar with it, I can still sort of rest on well, I do understand poker theory better than a lot of these people. And so my ability to navigate an unfamiliar situation is going to be, better than than theirs but yeah I, I do try to avoid like w once there are people who are experts in it then it's then it's scary to play it if you're not i just knew a guy once that there was the most killingest 1020 limit player this is like decades ago and then when the shift came to um hold him i mean I, I haven't like reviewed this guy's results but he seemed like a little bit at sea and then i stopped seeing him around anymore and I just don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Whether it's in music, whether it's in journalism, whether it's in poker, I don't want to be the guy that's just like, I can't, you know, I can't wrap my head around this new thing. Yeah, I, I try to look for role models of older people. Um, and I think they're not hard to find in music uh, who who do seem to still be able to like appreciate or engage with what younger people are doing. Like Rick Rubin comes to mind immediately. Um, as, as someone who's kind of like stayed engaged with, uh, I heard an interview with, um, uh, was it John Cage? Who's, who's, who's the other experimental, um, uh, Brian Eno, I think was, no, you know, it, was, I th it might've been Rick Rubin interviewing Brian Reno, but, or Brian Eno, but in any event, like, yeah, and he, he seemed like very aware of what younger musicians were doing now. And I'm sure there are some older musicians who are just like, oh, these kids these days. Um, but I, I'm most impressed with the ones who are still listening to, even if they're not, you know, making that style of music themselves, like they're listening to and appreciating the kind of music that younger people are making. I think it's really important. And I worry that I don't do it enough. 
because the way to find out about new music is totally changed. You know what I mean? Uh, so I don't know. I guess that's just like an ongoing mission, I guess, is to stay, not necessarily follow a trend, but stay relevant and be open to new ideas. Um, it's, I think the older you get, the harder it is, but I don't know. It seems like you're, I mean, you must be pretty successful. Like you're, you're, you're far more successful with your creative pursuit than most people are with theirs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure like you're, you should, you're, you should come on tour uh, in two weeks and see, <laughs> see how many people come out in Cleveland. Regardless of how many people are coming out, like to, to be touring at all, to be putting out albums at all, like most people don't, don't have a finished product to their, their creative endeavors, uh, let alone one that anyone is choosing to consume, um, even without being paid, uh, that just that, that they're, you know, putting time in, into appreciating. So I, I'm not blowing smoke. Like I think just to be doing what you're doing at all, you are already like in, in a, a pretty high tier of, uh, musicians, for instance. Um, I will be gracious and take the compliment and not point out that that's a little bit like being a rec, a rec player. <laughs> I mean, he's just a recreational player. So I feel like a recreational player uh, a lot of the time. So I'm going to, I'm just, but I appreciate it. I'm going to take it. I thank you so much. Um, so, I mean, I guess I, I was, I was going to be prompting you to say, you know, what are the things that you do to, you know, to, I guess, like to stimulate yourself creatively or to, to stay open to new things? I, Mainly I'm a workaholic. I'm not that interested in self-care or like a good having a balanced diet or exercise. What do I do? I read a lot. I probably read too much. I feel like reading can sometimes be hiding from the world, masquerading as like a, a holistic, you know, positive activity. But I read, I read a lot. But probably I should be seeing more live music. I see some and the bands that I like are the ones that I see live. So I'm not really like on an app looking for for new sounds. I'm like at a show or playing a show with other bands that I then get to know. I try to listen to my daughter, my 13-year-old, uh, and not sort of just ignore her beliefs about music. <laughs> like she hates the talking heads. I'm trying to understand. It's like, okay, does she, is there a reason? That maybe the talking heads aren't that good. Maybe I should try to understand why David Byrne is bad. <laughs> I can't understand it, but I feel like I should think about it or something. He was a Marylander, right? David Byrne? Yeah, I think so, right? Is he from Baltimore? Yeah, I, I think he went to, um, he didn't go to my high school, but I think I think he went to a high school near mine. I, I, I know someone whose mother had a crush on him in high school, if I'm remembering correctly. Very handsome young man. My daughter uh, cannot stand this man's voice. Um, <laughs> and when she, when she first said that, I was like, what are you talking about? This is David Byrne. But then now, where whenever I hear the talking heads, I'm like, maybe she's right. Maybe you know, like it's a little nasally, like. But one time in a in a uh, in a record review, my I someone compared my voice to David Byrne, so it's kind of like the snake eating its own tail, right? So it's like if I decide I don't like David Byrne, then I'm also kind of like, you know, coming down against myself in a way that you know, is a bit of a shame spiral. But anyway, I try to I try to listen to what she says. And take her. Uh, Any chance she was using him as a proxy to insult you? <laughs> and that's another very <laughs> intuitive psychological Freudian question. And I appreciate you raising that point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe she's insulting the old man. I'll have to think about that for a while. Yeah, I just, I just don't want to be a grumpy old dude. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Do you find it helpful to engage with other media? Like, did you go to like an art museum or something? Is, is that something that'll like stimulate uh, musical ideas for you? 
I read a lot about art and I, I, I go sometimes, I, sometimes, but then my back hurts. Do you ever go to a museum and then your back, your back hurts and you're like, this, these are some great, uh, you know, Van Gogh's, but my back is killing me. I need to sit down. Do you ever get that feeling at a museum? How do you, how do you know? I also have a third career in comedy. Like this <laughs> whole interview is hilarious. I, I need to get on that. Another, another arena of stress and failure. Uh, I, it's more the more the movies like I would um, I'd be more likely to um, to get inspiration from film just because I was bombarded with it as I think we all were in the 20th century before the internet that was like our whole life you know it's like what's on HBO let's watch this Martin Scorsese, Scorsese movie the 15th time you know what I mean um, so yeah I, I still I would probably engage with that most of all for a person who I've never made a movie or you know written a movie you know I, that's that's what inspires me I forget the exact term that you use, but when you're talking about the the milieu that your your music is coming out of, um, you mentioned having a, a kind of specific, I don't know if you said political persuasion or, or political ethos. purpose, ethos, yeah. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I guess it would be like kind of a, um, like small farmers, like Jeffersonian. Is that, is that, if I use the word Jeffersonian, am I, did everyone just turn off the podcast? <laughs> We're, we're small landowners. Yes. We're small landowners. We're doing our little cultural thing here in DC. It doesn't matter if everybody knows about it. We're just producing our own unique subculture. We're not trying to make money. It's do it yourself. We're not selling out. We're not depending on corporations. We're not going to a major label. That's the kind of politic uh, that DC historically had with bands like Minor Threat and Bad Brains and, you know, going back to the 1970s and again, resurging in the 80s and 90s. But most people don't know the first, the first thing about it. And the, a lot of the bands are sort of lost to history, uh, especially in a social media age where it seems impossible to not sort of need like Mark Zuckerberg. You're like, we, we need Zuckerberg on board to make this band happen. You know, um, we need Instagram. We need, you know, we need Bandcamp. We need... Um, we need all these platforms. DC in the old times was very, had a very different mentality. That's, I think it's now sort of lost, but it's part of my philosophical makeup. So it's hard to leave behind. Uh, and I guess you need Bezos to do journalism. Well, that's a whole other conversation that I'll probably should dodge, but yes, yes. <laughs> the news business is in trouble. Layoffs at the post among many other places, uh, buyouts at the post. So yeah, how that model looks in uh, in ten years, I don't know. I worry that my generation of, of reporters is the last generation, but I probably shouldn't be pessimistic. And I'm sure there'll be some other version of that in the years to come. Hopefully, calling people to account, so yeah. democracy doesn't die in darkness. It seems like there, there's some attempt at like punk journalism. Uh, you know, people like that's something that social media has in in some ways facilitated where you don't necessarily need the, I mean, obviously it's helpful to have a platform of like a Washington post or something, but it, it is more possible than ever for a totally amateur DIY journalist to you know tell a story and get it out to people. Absolutely. And I think that's great. But then sometimes maybe it's like really bad yeah. <laughs> and there's like misinformation. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I, I actually, I recently, I was in a situation where a famous, how am I going to say this? A famous politician was being interviewed by a outlet sympathetic to her as opposed to 
a neutral outlet. Like I think, I hope my organization is. And I was trying to overhear what she was saying because I wasn't permitted to ask her a question. A, a group of people formed a ring around her to prevent me from overhearing her comments. Um, and I was sort of like, this is kind of lame. If they were real reporters, they would let me hear. You know what I mean? But uh, they seem to have a different modus operandi, I guess I would say, or a different mission. And I feel like sometimes people have missions and sometimes that interferes with uh, their journalism. But say la vie, the world's changing and we've got to change with it, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's the in, in poker as as in journalism. Uh, th these things are happening one way or the other, and so we can we can either keep up or uh, drown in them. Yes, indeed. Uh, on that happy note, was there anything else you were hoping to <laughs> talk about that we haven't gotten around to yet? Not really. I just I really appreciate you all having me. Uh, like I said, I'm totally not qualified to be here, so I just it's really been great to ask you questions directly. If I ever see you uh, at MGM, the coffee is on me. Though I think they closed the Starbucks there. And I, I don't think that's your favorite card room. So I may not ever see you there. <laughs> <laughs> and Carlos, if you're in DC, say hello. I will. I will. Uh, so the uh, band, again, is Light Beams. And the album is uh, Wildlife. It's out there on all streaming platforms. And we'll we'll get a link in the um, show notes. Thanks so much, y'all. Thank you. It was great talking to you. It was great talking to you. This is great. Take care. Bye, Of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill.